Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Thomas Crocker. He is the professor of law at the University of South Carolina Law School. His research focuses on constitutional law, constitutional issues pertaining to national security, as well as issues about free speech and democracy. His new book has just been published with Yale University Press. It's titled Overcoming Necessity, Emergency, Constraint, and the Meanings of American Constitutionalism. A core duty of government is keeping the people it governs safe. However, in modern democratic states, the government is structured by a constitution, which establishes constraints and checks on the power of any political office. Still, emergencies from national, uh, natural disasters to terrorist attacks often call for a swift response that presses against those constraints and checks. In the United States, government, and the president in particular, has claimed authority to do what's necessary to secure and protect the American people. Can these claims be squared with a commitment to the Constitution? So in this fascinating book, Thomas Crocker explores the various ways in which claims that emergency grants to the president exceptional and extra-legal powers have been understood within the context of constitutionalism. Our Constitution suicide pacts. Does, it, does the fact that executive power must expand to meet emergencies mean that we should take up a skeptical view about constitutions and constitutional constraints as such? So as usual, there's, there's a whole lot to talk about. But before we get to talking about the book, why don't we begin as we normally do with our guest? Hi, Tommy. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Hey, no problem. Thanks for thanks for joining me. You know, we usually begin these um, uh, discussions, uh, you know, with um, with me asking the author to say a little bit about him or herself. So, uh, Tommy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Great. Thank you, Rob. Um, in addition to being a law professor, I also have a background in philosophy, having done a PhD in philosophy in your department. Uh, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so um, after that, I taught at a liberal arts college briefly before um, pursuing my interest in law. Um, I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. I come from a working class background, which makes it a little less uh, typical to have packed on so much academic um, education, having decided to do both philosophy and law. Um, but uh, I was motivated by, to go to law school while teaching at a liberal arts college when Bush v. Gore happened. And I really thought it, I wanted to make my theoretical interest uh, have the possibility of having uh, a legal salience, um, potentially being able to reach a different and broader uh, legal audience. Um, as a philosopher, I am uh, wrote on Wittgenstein, and it's Wittgenstein's thought um, uh, that that informs my interest in how concepts function in practice so that questions of meaning or value have to be asked by looking at how practices fit um, together. Um, And this particularly works out in how do legal concepts help make legal practices function. Um, So this Wittgensteinian background I bring to uh, this book, um, what I do uh, in uh, law more generally. It's fantastic. Um, and I, I, I guess also just uh, uh, a, a quick 
plug uh, for the Vanderbilt PhD program. <laughs> I guess also that the the interest in Wittgenstein, uh, as you just described, it also has um, a certain flavor of um, the ways in which, at least on certain readings of Wittgenstein, there are also sort of classical pragmatist themes uh, uh, <laughs> swimming around uh, there as well, uh, especially in, 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 in the way that you just articulated that influence. Would that be right? That's absolutely right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Um, all right. So um, why don't we start with the, the big picture that's sort of um, uh, looming in the background uh, uh, of uh, overcoming necessity. Um, so this is a you know, well-written, highly accessible book. Uh, philosophers, um, uh, I think, will, will, who read it will, will profit uh, from it a great deal. Um, but it is a contribution uh, to a debate or maybe a series of debates within the legal academy. Um, now, I take it that philosophers uh, will be familiar with you know, many of the issues that you're dealing with here, um, particularly some of the things that you have to say about you know, so-called ticking time bomb cases and the like. Um, we'll get to those a, a little bit later. Um, but you know, maybe it will be helpful just to sort of orient our listeners uh, to that larger background uh, from which this uh, um, analysis of claims about necessity uh, emerges. Great. Yes. I mean, the relationship between necessity and legal commitment or constitutionalism generally has a really long history, but its contemporary debate really picked up in the literature after 9-11. Um, maybe some of your listeners will, or most of your listeners will recall that immediately after 9-11, the, the tone of conversation changed and you would see editorials in newspapers saying, maybe it's time to start thinking about torture. Um, you had the White House and the vice president um, begin to talk about, we need to work the dark side and, and counterterrorism policy uh, met um, constitutional theory and philosophical debates um, square, uh, square on, right? How do we implement certain kind of ideas we have about how necessity might function to alter our existing commitments? Um, and so there's a lot of excellent writing in this debate. Bruce Ackerman's book, um, Before the Next Attack, comes to mind. Uh, David Cole uh, and Jules Lobel wrote um, uh, great books related to uh, the need to preserve civil liberties, um, I, it could go on. There's a large literature here. But one of the things that I thought um, uh, was lying in the background of this debate was this conceptual way that necessity continued to work um, in relation to ideas about how law might constrain or how law, commitments to legal principle uh, might serve as checks on uh, executive action that might want to engage in things like torture. Um and so everywhere we look, this debate, uh, in this debate, there were these unexamined initial premises about necessity, about the special justificatory role that necessity plays, um, and the way that uh, uh, necessity was said to be in tension with constitutions and constitutionalism at best, and at worst, in direct conflict. Um, and during this period, um, the work of the Nazi jurist Carl Schmitt came into a certain amount of vogue um, with professors in places like Harvard Law School um, taking up the task of re reinvigorating skeptical implications of Schmidt's thought, um, which in short is that constitutions do too little work in constraining or guiding executive action, especially during times of terror and emergency. Um, uh, and so these arguments from necessity, as you've already suggested, become attempts to justify interrogational torture, indefinite detention, and other counterterrorism practices. Um, and there's this long history in philosophy that philosophers may be aware of, going back to you know, Machiavelli um, is, is one of the places where I begin, um, Hume as recently as Henry Hsu, um, as well as founding figures such as Thomas Jefferson in the American constitutional tradition, Thomas Jefferson, who all warned about the limits of law and the priority that should be given to preservation of the polity um, during times of emergency, and that strict adherence to law itself might be a problem. Um, and so that you wanted flexibility in how 
or, or the thought is, is that we need flexibility in how executive officials might respond to emergencies and that commitment to law is fine in the normal times, but when a real emergency arrives, all bets are off. Do whatever is necessary, whatever it takes, no matter the law, you got to make people safe. So we have this formal commitment to the Constitution that is in tension with this functional claim about how necessity might um, relate um, to that formal commitment uh, in a way that says, let circumstances dictate. Um, So we have a dilemma um, that sets the background of this book, this dilemma about the idea of a constitution being a set of commitments, a set of principles that constrain action in all times. And this idea of flexibility that like, yeah, commitment's great until things get really tough. And then we need to start thinking about uh, how to get out of um, these constraints. And so the story of this book is set against this background, this dilemma that I try to diagnose the problem with the, the framing of this dilemma and, and a way out of it. Right. And would you say that just, you know, it might even be at least argued the very idea of a constraint, you know, sort of suggests that, you know, we're, when principles function as constraints, like, well, it's for the hard cases. That's what makes them constraints, right? They're not constraints when times are normal and you can go one way or the other and the principle guides you which way you should go. They function as constraints when there's really heavy duty pressure to do something that um, uh, is, is beyond the bound. Is that right? Uh, that's exactly right, right? So this is w- w- one of the starting paradoxes of this, this line of thought that, that I begin with is, is yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's like street signs too, right? If you know where you're going, you don't need to look at them. They're only useful when you don't know where you're going. So in some sense, if your inclination is to abide by certain norms, you don't even imagine doing anything differently because this is simply what we do. This is the rules by which we abide, the practices that have our, a certain set of values already embedded into them, you don't need to look at the rules. The rules are there when you're tempted to do something otherwise. And the irony of, or the paradox of the, um, uh, the necessitarian logic is that, hold it, as soon as you need the rules, they cease to actually constrain. And that's puzzling. Right. Can, can I just push this one more? I mean, we'll get into some more details, but I'm just curious just about, again, about the conceptual sort of terrain. Um, what role, what role does the, the idea that sort of constitutional norms and rules provide constraints, what role does that very idea play in helping us to identify the circumstances that should count for us as emergencies? Yes, right. So, so <laughs> I mean, it, it, this becomes complicated because the idea that a circumstance counts as an emergency, right, is already a judgment about the facts, uh, the nature of the situation. And the way that we view facts within a legal system, within a constitutional system, uh, the way we view facts that impinge upon or have effects on constitutional governance or how we should govern. Um, already embed ideas of what a constitution is. Um, uh, and so so even as you sort of begin to frame, an emergency might require the president to do fill in the blank. Um, the idea that there is a president that has a certain set of authorities, that those authorities are related to other bodies within uh, uh, government, say Congress or courts uh, or the citizens at large, right? That's already embedded in how we even begin to frame it. So there's already something puzzling that, At the same time, the framing of this potential paradox that we need to get out of the Constitution simultaneously presupposes that a certain amount of that constitutional framework um, uh, remains constant and unchallenged, um, and through which we then uh, might judge that a certain situation is an emergency requiring certain kinds of extra-legal, unconstitutional actions by executive officials whose power is constituted by the very constitution that they want to supersede. Great, great. That's that's all incredibly helpful. So um, uh, I'm sure, you know, many listeners um, will be familiar with at least um, some of the Schmidian uh, considerations that um, 
that the analysis, um, you know, sort of begins, you know, the sort of the first foe to be confronted uh, in your book, Tommy, is this Schmidian sort of constitutional skepticism challenge um, that um, leads some uh, theorists uh, to embrace a, a view um, that strikes me as a, a, an odd pairing of terms, uh, constitutional dictatorship. Um, very roughly, you're concerned early in the book um, with this challenge that says that liberal democracy invites, uh, uh, you know, brings upon itself its own undoing uh, in that it invites emergencies that it is ultimately uh, incapable of resolving, that, you know, the the very structure of a liberal democratic constitution, it seems that Schmidt thinks, um, these, you know, sort of invite the very um, forces that ultimately um, uh, undermine it. Um, and so um, at the core of liberal constitutionalism is a kind of invitation uh, to um, some kind of illiberalism. Um, and that's why we should be skeptical of liberal democratic constitutions. Um, could, yeah, so can you fill in a, a little bit of the story about that line of argument and uh, why you find it unpersuasive? Yes, I, that, that was very well put, put Rob, um, in terms of the explanation of how that argument um uh, unfolds. And it, it is this idea of deep skepticism that constitutions and constitutional practice are for normal times. And that as soon as an emergency arise, arises, the best a constitutional system can do is assign decisional authority to someone um, who must then be free to act free of norms, free of other legal constraints, um, in a way designed to bring about a resolution of the emergency. Um, and this is in part a skeptical position about the limits of law and advanced planning and pre-commitments in general. Um, so this idea is that the circumstances that might arise at some point in the future are so varied, are so unforeseeable, so much uncertainty that we don't want to be like Ulysses tied to the mast Um uh, inflexible in our ability to respond, but that the very idea of constitutionalism, according to the Schmittian skeptic, is just to set some frameworks for normal times, but that's it. We don't want to have to be tied to the mast um, when it comes to uh, the unforeseen emergency, particularly, I think, what is ever present in uh, the mind is not just a the hurricane or the, the, the some kind of episodic natural necessity-based um, emergency, but something that's existential, something that threatens the life of the polity uh, to its core. Um, and so that's where this kind of contradictory idea that you've referred to, constitutional dictatorship, comes comes in. It's, it's both the idea of stemming from a Schmittian viewpoint, uh, as well as uh, uh, a book by Clinton Rossiter called Constitutional Dictatorship that had a, gained a lot of attention, um, renewed attention. In, indeed, let me even add that that I think it's Continuum Press. Maybe I've got the press wrong. Um, but a press redid uh, Clinton Rossiter's Constitutional Dictatorship um, with an image of the Twin Towers sort of on fire and the Constitution in the background. Um so, so it was this real placement that 9-11 like, might, might alter the way that we think about uh, the, uh, our commitments to constitutional governance. Um, uh, and so this idea uh, is that a decider will have to resolve and we suspend everything in the Constitution uh, until such time as the crisis has been averted or overcome and that we would somehow return to normal, which, of course, the first problem with that idea is that the normal will no longer be the old normal. Something will be very different and the difference will be defined by things that have happened outside of normal constitutional governance. So that's a first problem. Um, and another problem with this, this, this line of thought is, is it starts with this big premise or, or big assumption that what we're really talking about is an existential crisis, but the conditions under which it's being imposed is as terrible as the events of September 11th were, it was an existential crisis for the country. It was a crisis and of great magnitude. Um, I don't want to belittle 
But I also, like, the idea that it would require us to reconsider the very framework of constitutional governance seems not available as, as a starting point. Um, and so um, there is this, this way in which the argument seems to shift from an episodic, smaller scale or delimited emergency to make claims on the basis of some very grand existential uh, emergencies and to suggest that the latter informs how the former um, should work. And I just don't see that that follows at all. Um, and in, in an inter- in the initial chapter uh, of the book, trying to lay, lay to rest this threshold question of, can constitu- are constitutions even capable of addressing emergencies? Um, I, I found um, it very interesting to use or to, to, to look at um, FDR's proposal in 1944 for a second Bill of Rights, um, in which he makes explicit that dictatorships are the things that become possible um, when people are hungry and out of work. So he he sets this idea of the conditions under which dictatorship happen are not emergencies of a particular grand political existential, but are, are the ways in which people might choose um, a form of governance that resolve very small scale um, uh, in some sense, um, uh, governing problems, how, how to make sure there's enough food, how to make sure there's um, uh, some basic employment and dignity uh, in life. And his solution wasn't to, hey, that creates a puzzle for constitutionalism. His solution is we've got to double down on constitutionalism. We need a second Bill of Rights that guarantees governing authority to be able to meet these basic necessities that would forestall any slide towards dictatorship. And so I find that move that like the, the emergency for a Schmittian is an occasion to get out of a constitution. But for FDR, the potential of an emergency, the stuff out of which dictatorships are made, is an occasion to double down on constitutionalism. And I think the better argument is with FDR. Um, and it goes to, at least in the American tradition, the initial framing of our constitutional system that Alexander Hamilton proposed in the first Federalist, where, to paraphrase, he asked whether societies uh, would be capable of governing through reflection and choice, or must they always be dependent on government through accident and force? And so he sets up this dilemma between reflection and choice as a condition of good governance and accident and force as, as the alternative. Um, um, and I take it that governing according to episodic necessities, um, the circumstances dictating how one should govern, are what he means by accident and force. And that reflection and choice are the conditions under which we provide justifications for adhering to commitments, to our understanding of what those commitments require of us. And if we find ourselves without enough law, The choice isn't to get outside of law, but to do as FDR suggests and double down on new constitutional rulemaking. Let's have a second Bill of Rights. Excellent. Excellent. So so then you're opposed to this sort of, um, again, Carl Schmittian kind of – Again, it's a conceptual claim, right? That the that the um, whenever you've got a a system of law that sets up constraints, there's going to be something that that or at least the possibility of something occurring that um, lies outside of the um, of what's recognized uh, by those constraints, and therefore, in the face of these emergencies, um, we've got to sort of get out of the constitution, and while we're at it, we'll also recognize that constitutions aren't all that important at the end of the day, or maybe not even coherent at the end of the day. Now, what you're suggesting then suggests, in response to the Schmidian then, suggests that there's this other, as you said, at this almost sort of FDR kind of move where, you know, the emergency is the um, attempt to sort of, um, uh, you know, recommit uh, to constitutionalism. So there is this other uh, view that you um, are also critical of that attempts to internalize uh, um, emergency and um, that arise from various kinds of necessity within constitutionalism by way of incorporating some constitutional conception of um, things like um, suspension of particular constraints. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yes. Um, so, so let me say that there's a, uh, say a family resemblance here among a, a family of views that, that are interrelated that are all, as, as you just described, internal views about the constitution. So the one is just to go to the constitution itself, which contemplates suspension of the writ of habeas corpus um, under particular emergency circumstances, insurrection, um, uh, uh, or rebellion, um, uh, or invasion. Um, and so in these contexts, the constitution contemplates that, that we may need to forestall the ability or requirement or obligation of executive officials to bring, um, and prisoners, suspects to a court for a hearing. And so to bring the body, the corpus before a court to make sure you're not mistreating them, this deep history and ang- Anglo-American law of the importance of the writ of habeas corpus, which means that we don't have executive discretion, that we are ruled by judges in part who are capable of checking the power of the executive. Our constitution says, look, we, we can relax that in a genuine emergency when Congress um, and there's some debate whether Congress or the president has the authority. Clearly, Congress has the authority to suspend the writ. The precedent from uh, President Abraham Lincoln is that the president may be the first, possibly the first mover. But, but not to get into the weeds in that kind of internal constitutional debate, the idea is that the Constitution does have mechanisms for thinking about how we might respond in an emergency and then provides rules for how they might, might be further constrained. Um, so that you will make it before a judge. It's just a temporary suspension. Um, it doesn't get rid of all the other rights-based obligations necessarily that uh, a uh, a government would have uh, towards uh, detained individuals. But pushing that to the side, that's the one that's buried in text. Um, as you suggest, there's a there are these other views. Um, one of them I, I would call the not a suicide pact view. Um, which is very Schmidtian in its orientation. And uh, uh, at the time, a federal judge sitting on the Seventh Circuit, uh, Judge Richard Posner, wrote a book with the title, Not a Suicide Pact. And I think the the, the main idea of this kind of view um, is that that at a certain limit, um, to adhere rigorously to constitutional rights limitations on what government officials, executive officials can do, um, during an emergency might be the equivalent of a suicide pact, right? Overly rigorous adherence itself is the harmful and that civil libertarians um, are the ones that may do more damage than the securitarian sort of um, uh, executive official focused on providing security. So there's they, they do this inversion that, hey, it's you, the libertarians, who might be the problem here, um, not the executive officials. There's another related view. It's called the extra legal measures view um, that a number of legal scholars and others have advocated, which is, let's just go ahead and say that it's okay for government officials to act illegally in an emergency. But what they have to do is after the fact, come along and uh, uh, it, admit publicly, this is what they've done, and to hold themselves out to accountability. So if they've done it, if they've acted wrongly, um, even in light of the emergency, we, the people, the courts, a legislature can hold them criminally or civilly responsible for what they have done. So go ahead and act illegally first. Accountability comes second. And there's a final one of these variations, um, which a law professor uh, had uh advocated, which is to understand the Constitution as embedding an implied internal principle of necessity. So the Constitution, beyond the suspension clause, which is narrow in what it contemplates, which is just the suspension of being able to go into court once you are detained, um, uh, that there's this broader principle on this view that that the Constitution embeds, that you can do whatever is necessary under the right un, under an emergency circumstance. Um, and so that you wouldn't be acting unconstitutional, there's a buried constitutional imperative that you do whatever is necessary. Now, that's implied. Uh, it's nowhere, unlike the suspension clause, it's nowhere found in the Constitution. Um, but it's an idea that, that tries to reconcile the Schmittian view with a constitutional view um, by p- placing at the heart of the Constitution or a Constitution this principle of, of necessity. And 
Okay, and can I ask you that 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 the, the way that it's implied is that that the implication comes from some um, some of the things that are explicitly said in the Constitution about what the president's or the executive's responsibilities are, and then argues that well, there are certain circumstances where, in order to dispatch these responsibilities, certain kinds of powers, you know, he's got to be able to do the things. You know, the president has to be able to do the things that he is. The Constitution says he's responsible for doing. What that means is that he also has to be empowered to do those things. Is that how that argument works? That is. That is. Okay. I mean, if, if we just look at the, uh, just focus on the text of how Article 2, which is the uh, article of the U.S. Constitution that provides uh, for the executive power, it begins with the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. And so one of the readings of what's called this vesting clause is is this implied exactly how you just just laid it out, this implied power that the executive has to be able to do the things that an executive must do under the circumstances, which is execute the laws, uh, to protect the nation, to provide for national security. Um, and so there's a lot buried in this idea, which also sneaks in a Lockean conception of prerogative um, with, uh, uh, among uh, these scholars or this line of thought into this opening phrase that like it's constitutionalizing Lockean prerogative at some level. Great, great, great. Um, so, did, did you did you want to continue on um, on talking about uh, the way that this is this third school that has this implied thing, or or sh- should we move on? Which is, I, I feel like I interrupted a thought earlier. Well, let me just 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 add. I mean, part of the project of what I'm doing is just showing the weakness of uh, and a problem with each of these kind, uh, this family, um, that the not a suicide pact fails to take seriously what it means to be constitutionally committed. The extra legal measures invites us to embed in our very conception of what a off, uh, what a president or an executive official is allowed to do. This idea of a post hoc, um, uh, after the fact accountability regime, which the executive is free to manipulate. Um, and so it, it basically becomes what what is purported to be a two step process in some ideal world might be, but in any real functioning constitutional system will be a one step person process, act illegally and then avoid all accountability mechanisms altogether by either defining them away because you're the one that was able to define the nature of the circumstances and your actions, um, or just the political circumstances being such that it's very difficult to get to that step too. And the same with the internal principle of necessity. I mean, apart from having to accept a a very highly contestable and contested opening clause to article two, this vesting clause, um, uh, which would seem to sort of eat the whole idea of the constitution, because if there were this internal principle of necessity, it would be the executive who would get to always claim it. And what would be its boundaries? Um, so, so it seems to be internally incoherent uh, as a as a way of understanding how constitutionalism might function. Great, great. So that that's that that's very helpful. Um, so uh, one next move, or one I guess in some ways related move, at least to some of the positions you've just been laying out, has to do with what you call normalizing necessity, and this in part has to do with. Um, adopting a system of tiered scrutiny um, that's in a way supposed to model the, the sort of Hamiltonian idea of sort of reflection and choice. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the, those different tiers of scrutiny are supposed to play into uh, these these cases of emergency? Yes. So, so to, just to return to this sort of big framework, this idea is that necessity creates this occasion. It's a set of justificatory claims, claims made on behalf of necessity that would seem to require extra legal, illegal action. Um, And part of that, the the skeptical claim is, is that constitutions can't deal with um, the emergence of claims about necessity. And uh, the argument about normalizing necessity is, is to say, actually, that's a false premise. That's just false. Because part of what constitutions do all the time is seek to recognize a possible occasions of necessity to 
tame or overcome them and embed justificatory frameworks for addressing how they work. And so um, uh, in American constitutional law and in European sort of human rights law, we have variations of an idea of proportionality or tiered scrutiny. And what this means is, is we're never rights absolutist. So a claim that you, a person has a right um, is a first step in a, a justificatory legal framework uh, in which a state can say, well, yeah, you have that right, but if we have a compelling interest, say, under strict scrutiny, um, and the methods that we uh, undertake um, to meet that interest are sufficiently narrowly tailored, then we're allowed to do it. So, you know, equality is great, but there are certain times in which maybe race consciousness is a hat in pursuit of diversity, for example, um, is a compelling state interest and sort of the use of race in uh, emissions practices at universities is sufficiently narrowly tailored to achieve that purpose. So just to use that as one like readily available example that, that everyone should be familiar with, right? It's not as if it, the equality principle is being undermined here. It's being understood in how it works in relation to existing governing powers and governing interests. Um, and this is how rights work all the time, that, that, that when it comes to Fourth Amendment rights to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, um, legal doctrine embeds an idea that there are special needs that can justify the ability for uh, police officers or executive officials to gain access to information outside of the rigorous normal ways in which maybe probable cause would have to be shown or at least reasonable suspicion to use some of these doctrinal standards but the idea is is that that exigency which is what it's often what emergencies are called in the fourth amendment context exigencies arise that 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 create justifications from deviating from um, absolute rights baselines um, and this is what constitutions do that's not a problem not a bug uh, uh, a thing that it, the constitutions can't overcome, but it's part of what normal constitutionalism does is it provides the frameworks for exactly these kinds of justificatory frameworks. Um, and so the, the, the argumentative point of, 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 of recognizing just how normal necessity claims can be is to sort of rebut the idea that necessity claims must, must be some extraordinary problem that constitutions can't address. Great, great. Um, so let's move on to what you call constitutional emergencies. This is a, uh, a part of the book that addresses some of the things that um, uh, some of the philosophers who will be listening uh, in uh, uh, to our conversation uh, will be more familiar with than some of the constitutional doctrines we've just been discussing. So this is ticking time bomb scenarios and uh, enhanced interrogation, uh, uh, interrogation um, uh, uh, cases. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, um, in, in the book, you know, lays out in a, in a very nice way, uh, you know, even some of the history uh, of um uh, sort of the, the 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 legal representation of the president's uh, uh, powers uh, uh, or the government's powers to uh, uh, interrogate and torture people. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that part of the analysis? Yes. Yeah, so this becomes a real limit case, right? So it, you might say that that's fine, uh, uh, Tommy. That that norm that the Constitution has this way of internalizing arguments about necessity within constitutional justificatory frameworks. But what we're really talking about here is emergencies. What happens when you need to torture someone? It is clearly illegal to torture someone. Um, right. Making time bomb hypothetical, being, you know, this limit case, like how far do your commitments to live within moral or legal or principled constraints go? Are they willing to contemplate the, the unfolding of this thousands, millions of people will be harmed, but for your refusal to torture this one suspect. Um, so the legal arguments uh, uh, or conceptual arguments framed within law um, uh, 
uh, were deeply embedded in uh, lawyers working for the Bush administration. Um, uh, lawyers like Jay Bybee, who went on to become a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, John Yu, who is a professor at uh, the law school at Berkeley, I believe, um, uh, or was. Um, and their arguments are that they're, the text, the history, the structure of the Constitution uh, contemplate this idea that the president um, has the primary responsibility um, for protecting the nation and therefore must have all powers necessary to bringing about that protection, to fulfilling that responsibility. So with great responsibility comes great powers, is this basic argument. And that power extends to an ability to engage in things that otherwise would be illegal, like torture. And so these abstract philosophical or conceptual arguments about the nature of the Constitution in very practical terms, especially in the post-9-11 world, became very real, very concrete uh, as guides to uh, legal memos as guides to uh, understanding this, the authority of the president to order what might account uh, mount as torture. Now, there's lots of tricks that the legal, the lawyers can play here. One is to, which the infamous torture memo did, which is to define torture in such a, a restrictive way in which nothing any of us would ordinarily think of as torture would count. So the right. legal memo was basically only the pain that's associated with organ failure or death. If you don't do that, then it's not torture, um, which is a really crabbed and artificial way. But notice how one way of avoiding the claim that, well, you're actually violating the law is to define the law in a way that avoids the, the conflict. But secondarily, if you can't avoid the conflict, the memo went all the way there with, besides the fact the president has the final say on this. Um, right. And so... So what what you get in the academy or what philosophers are familiar with is the ticking time bomb scenario meets real world legal memos and how it gets embedded. Um, And what I try to do is discuss this interrelationship between um, uh, these theoretical and legal arguments that coalesce on, on, can coalesce on the idea that torture is justified under certain circumstances, which is one of the conclusions, say, Judge Richard Posner's uh, uh, work, Not a Suicide Pact, is willing to, to, to reach. Um, uh, and what I suggest is that, that, number one, these family of views that help like animate this seem to out- act like it's a get-out-of-the-Constitution-free card. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, to return to the internal incoherence of that, um, what I want to suggest is that, number one, on the philosophical point, once you allow the role of your imagination to say that, well, under conditions of certain kinds of uncertainty in which I have a suspect in which uh, against whom I might be justified in torturing, um, uh, once you allow imagination to have this role, it's almost limitless. Um, because in the kind of world that that I also discuss, where Vice President Cheney at, at, at the time um, uh, was uh, willing to say that if there's like this one percent idea, like if there's any chance of a catastrophic um, uh, additional terrorist attack, we must treat it as a near certainty. And that once once you're bound up in this world of someone might know something because, and again, the Rumsfeldian, uh, your listeners may be familiar with the the, the famous sort of Rumsfeld epistemology. It's the we don't know that we don't know about that we're really worried about. It's the things we right. know we don't know. We can go find out more about, but we're really worried about the things we don't know that we don't know. And 9-11 was an example of that. Um, and so once you're in the world of I don't know that I don't know, and there's a suspect, the, 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 the responsibility to protect the nation sort of gets flipped on its head. It, it would be irresponsible not to torture the individual because you don't know what the person might know. Um, um, and so there's this logic that it, 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 it gets, it, it gets away with itself. Um, and so this is one internal critique of, uh, that I, I try to run, uh, or, or, or that, that, that once we allow the imagination to play a particular role, we're kind of done for, we can't limit it. And therefore it does far more than we contemplated it doing which is to justify this one very narrow 
Um, it might create an obligation for much broader use of torture. And the second argument is to look at the way that constitutions are based um, on sovereignty of the people. And it's by leave of individual persons that the government is supposed to have the power that it has. Um, and that torture, along many other forms of cruelty against individuals, kind of undermine the conditions of the permissibility of government authority in the first place. So there's self-undermining, self-defeating um, uh, uh, as uh, answers or responses to what's an appropriate action during an emergency. Great. So the um, the sixth chapter argues that um, constraints on executive power derive not only from the checks uh, on that power that are um, provided by the other branches of government that are identified in the Constitution, um, but you also um, point out that um, the president is bound um, in the, by the Constitution, as the language goes, to take care to faithfully execute the laws. Um, and you say that um, the president is responsible uh, by that, uh, that clause uh, for, as you put it, fulfilling a vision of constitutional life. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So this, there, there was this article called The Completion Power that was published in the Yale Law Journal by uh, uh, Jack Goldsmith and John Manning uh, at Harvard Law School in which they had this really intriguing suggestion that the, the, there is a necess necessary and proper clause that applies to the powers of Congress. And what they wanted to do was suggest that there's an implied necessary and proper clause that applies to the president. Now, different than this sort of other version of the internal principle of necessity, um, they wanted this to be a way that the president would have wiggle room in between statutes and laws, to fill in the gaps, to complete the law, to make it a whole. And in that way, to, to sort of impart a vision of presidential power, how it might be appropriately used in certain circumstances, and what are the values and principles and constraints of American constitutionalism, where, where the president has authority to fill in and complete the whole picture. And this being being an analog to how the necessary and proper clause works in relation to Congress. And in that instance, um, the necessary and proper clause follows after a sort of laundry list of powers that Congress has. And then the constitution says, and Congress also have uh, all powers necessary and proper um, for bringing those about effectively. Um, and so if you think of the president as having a lot of laws that he must take care to faithfully execute, that have to fit together into some kind of coherent whole, the idea is that maybe the president has this implied necessary and proper authority to, to fill in the gaps, to have some discretion. Um, and this may be particularly useful, so the authors think, um, in emergency circumstances, so that a, a president wouldn't be strictly acting illegally if he fills in some gaps. Those are very different than justifying that the president can has authority to act illegally or to ignore the Constitution altogether. It's a kind of interesting idea about being able to complete um, uh, a set of constitutional and statutory uh, directives. Uh, what I found most interesting about um, that argument is the way that it focused on the necessary and proper clause, but never once talked about the idea of appropriateness or propriety. Um, and what struck me about this is that there's this open invitation that, 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 the president, in and if if the president has this completion power, it could only be appropriately understood or justified if it also attended to condition normative conditions of what is appropriate. So you can do what is necessary, but only if it's appropriate, which binds you into that normalizing of necessity kind of justificatory frameworks, um, in which appeal to a very foundational case, McCullough v. Maryland, um, which was. Uh, an early Republic case in which uh, the Supreme Court sort of explained this idea of necessity and the idea of the Constitution as being created to adapt to various crises as they might emerge in the future. But but the obligation was to announce the norms and values um, and the consistency with constitutional norms and values um, 
when in, when making choices to to complete or to exercise or do what is necessary. So, um, I, I thought I, I think this is an interesting idea um, that that um, uh, the presidential power, the idea that the president would have responsibility for national security um, and therefore power. That responsibility is a responsible responsibility to the Constitution and about the Constitution, for which the president, as you suggested in, in the lead to the question, um, has this power and obligation to impart a vision of constitutional life. And presidents do this in speeches all the time. Um, and though right now uh, in our conversation, I've, I seem to, seem to find myself going back to the Bush administration an awful lot. Um, <laughs> the Obama administration uh, also continued many Bush administration policies and the Trump administration purported to jettison the idea that he would be constrained against uh, norms against torture. Uh, moreover, decided the Trump administration wanted the ability to bring more people to Guantanamo Bay um, as a detention site for indefinite detention of terrorism suspects, which the Obama administration had not done, in which the Bush administration had initially created. Right. So, so we seem bound by presidents who each impart a kind of idea of the scope of their power and how that fits in with their image of what it is to be sort of the identity of the nation, what it is to be an American under the American constitutionalist system. Um, and so um, if we accept that premise that, that the presidents have this power, they also have this obligation to impart a vision of constitutional life that meets some criteria of appropriateness, that, that fits, coheres with, this is going to sound Dworkinian, um, a best understanding of our constitution tradition uh, and its history. Um, and so when it works well, you could say the completion power, if it exists, is a great way of, of, of inviting a conversation about legal and moral norms that might also constrain uh, a president's action, even when a president claims that necessity uh, provides a sort of framework of justification for a particular action. Right. Very good. So, you know, the, the we're not, um, it's not so unfamiliar to think that um, the presidency has this distinctive kind of expressive um capacity. Uh, you know, we often talk about people acting presidential. Um, and so it seems that if the, if the, if the presidency does, you know, if the behavior of the president has some expressive function, uh, about that particular individual's conception, uh, of his office, uh, and, um, what's appropriate to, uh, that office, uh, then, yeah, it does seem to me to be not such a stretch to say, well, then it looks like there are responsibilities to <laughs> sort of conduct oneself given that expressive, that distinctive kind of expressive power one has uh, to conduct oneself uh, uh, accordingly. Does that seem right? That's that's right. And what's fascinating is, is that the, the, in these legal memos and in this sort of not a suicide pact kind of family uh, of ideas was that responsibility ran one way. And that was to power enhancement. Um, but if you take seriously the idea that there would be a responsibility here, it's not just to security. It's to preserving and protecting the Constitution and to the polity and to the polity's commitments to certain ideas. And that, that responsibility is also to publicly like articulate what this vision of constitutional life is like. And as soon as you're obligated at to do that, you're obligated to reason within normative frameworks, like to, to explain the normative order of how the things fit together, um, which is it's a real con potential constraint. So that responsibility is this constraining, normative constraining feature of presidentialism. Great. Great. No, that's, that's fabulous. Um, so Tommy, you know, you've been really generous with your time, but I really wanted to make sure uh, that we got to talk about... Um, uh, the 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 closing of the book, which is um, again uh, brings in some of the 
uh, philosophical materials that I, 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 I know from your uh, prior self as a philosopher, uh, you know, straightforward philosopher, uh, very close to your heart. So, you know, I was intrigued um, and in a way delighted, tickled uh, to find that Bernard Williams comes up uh, uh, close to the end uh, of the book. Um, and you find in Williams some of the conceptual resources um, that um, help us to talk about sort of how our constitutional practices fit together with and inform and shape our self-understandings as a political community. Um, that's the most, on my read, that, that discussion is the most sort of straightforwardly, I don't mean this as an insult, but the most straightforwardly philosophical part of the book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, that, 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 those closing notes uh, of the book? Yes. I mean, you're right. In some ways, apart from the Schmittian background, right, this is the most philosophical. Um, and I was, I am intrigued by, uh, Bernard Williams' um, discussion about uh, necessity and how it relates to moral character. Um, and so one of the things that that these necessity claims do in the constitutional sphere is they also, and this is one of the problems with the extra legal measures family or the, the non-suicide pact family of ideas, is they simultaneously say we're responsible, but then they want to jettison accountability because the necessary circumstances are the things that compelled the action. And therefore, in some irony, the actions that follow aren't chosen, but are dictated by matching means and ends that the circumstances themselves dictate. And so there's this sort of sleight of hand, like we have the power, but don't hold us accountable because we couldn't have acted other than we did. And this is a point that Bernard, Bernard Williams directly addresses, that it's the Things that we claim that we're incapable of doing otherwise that most reveal our character and that most reveal our commitments to certain kinds of moral principles. Um, and so rather than being an incapacity, the necessity being this occasion for um, uh, getting out of responsibility, it becomes instead in an inversion um, uh, the occasion for really understanding what the identity or character of a person is. Because if you have a certain kind of character with a certain kind of commitments, certain actions just aren't going to be available. They're not going to be salient options for you. Um, and so part of what it is to have a character, you, you are revealed, according to Williams, in what you do. Um, and I think this directly applies to these arguments about constitutionalism, that we review right. character in this way. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Just so, yeah, good. You just helped me sort of draw a connection that I um, – so, right. So think about uh, – and oh, and I guess that there is a sentence in there about Frankfurt-style wantons, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, right, right. Good, good. So uh, is, is it the Schmidian who winds up being the wanton or is it the, the Posner suicide pact person in your view who winds up being the wanton? If it's okay, I think both. Great. <laughs> because both of them um, uh, pretend like there isn't a core set of values that that we want to motivate what what it is we do. Right. So they, they it's this pretense that the values no longer have continuing salience once the emergency arises, and which means that you don't have this desire that your principles be effective in how you go about choosing and without right. that, that 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 second order desire that your principles have a role to play in your decision making processes you become a moral wanton someone incapable of having that kind of moral reflection and this goes right back to the the alexander hamilton sort of challenge it's through reflection and choice a moral reflection and choice about making um, certain kinds of actions match our principles that keep us from being wanton. So I think in that way, both Schmitz and the the, the not a suicide pact would uh, are attempting to make us into wantons, constitutional wantons. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Um, so I, I'm sorry to have, have uh, and I, you know, I was just thinking, oh, that's right. You know, on these um, on these sort of constitutional wanton sort of um, views, you know, th they really couldn't understand the sort of Williams one thought too many kind of arguments. So there's a sort of like, yeah, there, there's certain kinds of considerations that 
part of what it is to be a person to have a, a, a ident- to have an identity is um, to recognize that there are certain considerations that cannot be thinkable. <laughs> that are not thinkable by you. Um, so I'm sorry. I, I, I feel like I, I got you off the rails. So can you, can you spell out that that the significance of that Williams uh, um, that line from Williams that I find deeply persuasive? I should add in case it's I should add in case it's not already um, <laughs> obvious. <laughs> can you spell that out uh, or continue to spell that out? Yeah. So I mean, I, th- I, th- I think the idea is is just as a person that you might have a set of principles to which you're committed in this kind of way. As, as a constitutional system of government, as a nation, a constitutional uh, republic, um, that, that part of what you do is have an identity that's bound up with that constitution and the commitments that it provides. Um, and it embeds, there's a source for embedding um, uh, principled core foundational values around which you organize a collective life. Um, and so this vision of constitutional collective life is one that's, that's, that's imbued with uh, moral considerations and uh, a moral view um, and to have a character, to, to, to have a certain outlook um, uh, as a nation, as a constitutional system is, is parallel to what it is to be a person. It's to have an identity over time, to sustain certain commitments, to have those commitments play a particular role uh, in your collective decision-making processes uh, and so forth. That's fantastic. Um, you know, uh, uh, Tommy, uh, you know, you've been, you've been great. Thank you uh, for joining me today on New Books and Philosophy. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Um, and, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for the discussion. You'll remember um, I've been talking to uh, Tommy Crocker uh, about his new book that's newly out with Yale University Press. And the book is titled Overcoming Necessity, Emergency, Constraint, and the Meanings of American Constitutionalism. Thanks again for listening, and bye for now.